Welcome to the European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. Together with Plaster and Icoplast, we bring you the latest open access articles with unique insights from the authors and discussion with plastic surgery experts around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for this month's inaugural episode of the European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. I'm your host, Demetrius Rhesus, and I'm a plastic surgery registrar in London, UK, and head of operations for our trainees association, Plaster. Today we'll be discussing and appraising a new open access article in this month's issue of EJPS, entitled, A European Perspective of the Cost-Effectiveness of Facial Composite Tissue Allotransplantation. It is written by senior author, Mr. Ali Ghanem, and we are honored to be joined by him today to discuss the article. Mr. Ghanem is a clinical senior lecturer in plastic, reconstructive and aesthetic surgery at the Centre of Cell Biology and Cutaneous Research at Barts and the London Medical School. He is also the course lead for the Masters in Aesthetic Medicine and Reconstructive Microsurgery Programmes. And thank you very much, Ali, for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, we're also extremely honoured to be joined by Dr. Bodan Pomahak. He is the Roberta and Stephen R. Weiner Distinguished Chair in Surgery at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. He is also the Founder and Director of the Transplantation Program at Brigham and Women's and Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. He is a pioneer in the field of VCA and led the team that performed the first full face transplant in the USA in 2011. He has also published extensively on all aspects of VCA, including immunomodulation and cost-effectiveness. And we very much look forward to learning from his experience today. Thank you, Dr. Pomahak. My pleasure. Thank you. And from the European Journal of Plastic Surgery, we are honored to be joined by none other than the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Horatio Mayer. He is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at the University Italiano de Buenos Aires in Argentina, and he's also the Chairman of the Education Committee of Icoplast, and he is a driving force that has made this journal club possible. Thank you very much, Horatio. Thank you. And also from Icoplast, we are joined by Mr. Graham Perks. He's a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon in Nottingham, UK with a specialist interest in microsurgical reconstruction after both sarcoma and head and neck cancer surgery. He is the past president of BAPRAS and is an internationally acclaimed trainer and mentor for plastic surgery trainees around the world. He has also helped to develop this journal club from the outset, and we are honored to be joined by you today, Mr. Perks. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And last but not least, we are joined by Dr. Laura Berlage, who will be leading the critical appraisal of the article today. She is a resident in the plastic surgery at Radboud University in the Netherlands and also has a PhD in novel preservation methods for VCA and is passionate about reconstructive transplantation. Thank you for joining us today, Laura. Thank you for the introduction. So without further ado, I will now hand over to Laura, who will quickly tell us a bit about VCA before we review the article. Face transplantation belongs to the generation of vascularized composite allografts, which is actually and block reconstruction of functional units of different tissue types and serves to treat patients with severe disfigurements for which conventional reconstructive options are not enough to restore function and aesthetics. And it's also been referred to as facial reconstructive transplant surgery. Ever since the first successful solid organ transplantation performed in 1954, the field of transplantation has been greatly developing over the last years. The first face transplant has only been performed in 2005. In the last 15 years, there have been 41 face transplants reported worldwide, both full and partial. 
And in 2014, the OPTN finally stated that VCA was officially an organ, which was a huge stepping stone for the field of VCA because it really enabled safe distribution and allocation of face transplants. To date, the survival rate of face transplantation has been 86%. The field of face transplantation has been greatly developing over the last few years, and we've booked already a few advances. The social and ethical acceptance towards facial transplantation is continuously growing, and the first outcomes in terms of function, sensory, and aesthetics are very promising. And face transplant patients also report improved psychological well-being and self-worth. Of course, the field of face transplantation is still developing. There are still a few hurdles to overcome. One of the biggest being discussed over the last years is the need for immunosuppression. Patient selection and donor matching is also a subject that is continuously improving. Also, the optimization of the preservation of the graft prior to transplantation is a subject that people around the world are working on. Another issue that has been discussing worldwide is the high cost of care around face transplantation and the lack of long-term data. And considering those last two challenges, we'll be discussing the European paper on this subject. Thanks very much, Laura. That was great. As you said, that leads perfectly on to discussion of the article. And it'd be great to hear your summary of the article and your initial thoughts. So I really enjoyed reading the paper, first of all. Um, this paper describes a prognostic study that pragmatically estimates the cost-benefit of facial composite allotransplantation in the UK using a stepwise approach. In the first part of the study, authors implicate the cost of conventional reconstructive care of two patients that had suffered from pan-facial injury and would have been applicable for facial CTA. The first case served as an indicator for the cost of care from trauma to discharge. The second case served as an indicator of the accumulated cost of care after primary reconstruction, so from discharge until six years of follow-up. The cost of conventional care were scored in four main categories, surgical procedures, inpatient stay, outpatient clinic appointments, and investigation. And based on these two cases, authors calculated the total cost of primary reconstruction of pan-facial trauma and three years of follow-up to be 219,015 British pounds. In the second part of the paper, two cost analysis papers are being discussed. The first being the American cost analysis paper from the first author, Simeone, uh, published in 2011, comparing the cost of conventional reconstructive care until facial transplantation in one patient with three years of follow-up. The second paper that's discussed is a French study by the first author, Ruek et al., published in 2012, in which the authors describe the cost of facial transplantation of five patients and compared these costs to the cost of solid organ transplantation in the same center. From these two papers, the author extracts the assumptions that the cost of conventional face reconstruction in the US is one-on-one -on -one comparable uh, to the cost in the UK, and therefore that the cost of facial transplantation in the UK would have been also somewhat comparable to the cost of face transplantation in the US. From the French paper, the authors concluded that the cost profiles for transplantations are one-on-one -on -one comparable between the EU and the UK. So in summary, the authors conclude in this article that face transplantation is a viable treatment option for patients with pan-facial 
defects with an apparent cost benefit from the third year post procedure. So that's the summary. So like I already mentioned, I really enjoyed reading the paper, first of all. And I really want to compliment the authors for writing a cost analysis paper on face transplantation, even though they didn't have the luxury of relying on their own clinical data. And therefore, they had to come up with an innovative equation to predict the cost of face transplantation in the UK. And by doing so, the authors do not only acknowledge the potential of facial transplantation, but they also show their intention to actively explore this clinical option, which I personally found very inspiring and exciting for the field. Also, I found it really refreshing to read a paper on cost effectiveness of face transplantation, because I find that face transplantation in itself has been such a polarizing subject. The discussion on clinically implementing this technique has been mainly dominated by the ethical considerations. And I'm excited to see that the discussion is now evolving more towards a broader economic and healthcare perspective. And in my opinion, I feel that for the progression of the field of PCA and face transplantation, the authors really hit the bullseye by shining light on this subject. Also, academically speaking, there are, of course, a few remarks that can be made. For example, that there is more data needed to make more significant conclusions. Uh, but the author already mentioned it themselves, and we only have 41 face transplants worldwide. And in the paper, the author scratches the surface of the effectiveness of facial transplantation. But I think it would have been interesting to elaborate on that a little bit more and to discuss potential healthcare benefits in a broader light. Thank you very much, Laura. That's great. I think, yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there and it is a great paper. Um, and it's really, it poses many questions as it answers, I think, and really lets us explore this from a UK perspective and learning from the experience in both the US um, and the rest of Europe as well. Thank you so much for that introduction. And now I'll hand over to Horatio, who will ask you some more questions regarding the appraisal of the paper and also Mr. Ganem and Dr. Pomahak's thoughts on each part as well. Sure. First, I would like to congratulate uh, Laura for a nice presentation for uh, her critical analysis of the paper. I agree with her that it's a very good paper. As Laura said, most of the papers that can be published about CBA or facial transplantation is about ethical concerns. But this kind of cost analysis of the procedure are very useful, especially for doctors that are trying to develop a facial transplant program in their own countries. So it's very difficult to deal with those doctors that don't really understand. So I think that having this kind of information regarding cost and cost benefit in the long run, I think is very useful to have this data published. So these kind of articles are useful to deal with that situation. I would like to ask Laura, if you decide to carry out a similar study in the Netherlands, would you change anything in the design of this study? What would you change in order to gain more consistent information or more important information I mean, or more evidence in your study? Would you change anything? Thank you for your question. So for the design of the study, if I would do this in my own center, I would still like do a backtracing of the costs of conventional care for patients who would have been applicable for facial CTA. So I wouldn't change that. 
maybe I would increase the numbers a little bit. And also there could have been a little bit more background on why they chose these two cases. For example, the first being a patient with defect of skin, of muscles and of bone, and the second only of skin, something like that. And I would categorize these kind of costs. Also, it was really interesting to see that they compared it to the cost of solid organ transplantation, because solid organ transplantation is, of course, already clinical practice. So I would do that as well. Something I would take into consideration is the differences in healthcare systems, which is, of course, very difficult. But now we're comparing a healthcare system in the U.S., with a, where a face transplantation, for example, is still, correct me if I'm wrong, but partially funded by the, the DOD, for example. And now they're comparing it to a healthcare system in the UK, which is, again, different from the Netherlands. So I would maybe try to keep it a little bit closer to home and do only the comparisons and predictions within Europe, for example. Great. I agree with you that it's hard to compare different culture systems, not the same Europe with America or the North America or even Latin America. So the costs in healthcare are totally different. That was actually one of the limitations of the paper, not right? comparing different healthcare systems and different costs. I agree with you that putting more patients will be deceivable. Also, in the other hand, it is not clear for me, perhaps Ali can enlighten us about why did he choose to calculate the cost of surgical treatment in one patient and calculate the cost of postoperative care in another patient. They were not able to get the information from the same patient, the surgical cost and the postoperative care cost. I think it will be useful or interesting to have the full information from both patients and not that partial information for two different patients. So perhaps Ali can explain us why he decided to include this partial information. Otherwise, I think that this is a very useful paper, has limitation, of course, but in that we surgeons, we need to know about costs. So I was very happy when Ali chose our journal to submit this work. So I think one of the challenges that I faced myself on this planet, which we all have seen how three grams of billions of viruses put it all on a standstill. So biology of this planet has been fascinating before I was born and even now more than ever. And as a, a trainee like Dimitris, I was faced with these two patients. So I've looked after both of them and I was shocked to like see, for example, the first case, uh, that's the answer to you, Horacio. So the first case was an acute case where a, a patient, unfortunately, for psychological reasons, tried to commit suicide, ending up you know, with a similar etiology to many of the American or the European uh, cases that has been reported, blowing his face, but not the brain. So he survived the problem. And he presented to us from day one so we were the hospital that received him as a airlifted emergency. Bart's Health is the level one trauma center. And we looked after him continuously, exclusively, until he was discharged to a 
community healthcare facility. So he represented the cost burden of this acute phase of pan-facial injuries. Of course, I would love to ask Bodan later on in relation to the fine-tuning of the indications to kind of consider even whether composite uh, tissue allotransplantation can be suitable for an acute phase, you know, rather than in a kind of a delayed uh, situation. So that is the reason why we chose this patient, because he has been left with sequela of his injury and successful reconstruction with multiple free tissue transfer to address his function and to some degree cosmesis, but he was not there yet. I mean, he would not have been able to go to the community to walk in a street. He would have the stigmata of pan-facial deformity that would not enable him to socially integrate. So he would still require a lot of treatment, but we don't have the data for that treatment. So the end of our data was the, the discharge from the acute stage. The other patient, again, by serendipity, um, my uh, mentor and uh, teacher at the time, my colleague at the time, Professor Myers, he inherited that patient. Professor Myers is a Bairn reconstructive surgeon, and he was in the charge of the only uh, burn center inside the capital London, Chelsea and Westminster. And he moved academically from Imperial College, Chelsea and Westminster to the, the BARTS in East London. And he had looked after this patient in the acute phase. This was a political activist who self-emulated and you know, ended up with a third degree or full thickness burn of his face. And he had you know, kind of conventional reconstruction in the acute phase. And as Professor Myers moved, you know, this patient was discharged from the hospital. However, all his care as an outpatient candidate with all the reconstruction and the burden of care over the period um, that followed his acute phase was documented in Bart's health. So we have access to kind of the long-term burden of pan-facial injuries. I acknowledge the difficulty with two different etiologies, one like blast explosive injury, the other one was a burn injury, but this is the nature of pan-facial injuries. You know, that the 43 odd cases, they have a varied etiology, a traumatic, thermal, dog bite, ballistic injury, etc. So we had the unique situation, we have a full data of outpatient attendance, you know, secondary operations after their initial discharge from the one patient, and then the other patient presented the acute phase. So we had these unique data sets, and, and that's why we use these two patients separately. So if, of course, for patient number two, if we are to follow them up for five years or seven years, of course, that would be then favorable. We will have the actual real burden of care cost in a single patient. But we didn't have that data because as we decided to write it, he just discharged from the hospital. Wonderful. Thank you for your explanation, Ali. Now, I would like to um, like mention something about the, the journey of writing this article. It was very difficult. And actually, I'm very grateful that Tiffany, again, was my student when she put this together and also another uh, trainee. So here, I, I would like to highlight the importance of 
you know, senior and junior members of the team working together on data, on conceptions for this to come together. And as Dimitri has uh, introduced uh, me, you know, kind of like for, for 10 years, I led um, the, the master program in aesthetic medicine and reconstructive microsurgery. And together, they kind of made me. So I am a, a reconstructive surgeon with interest in, in aesthetics. And here, unfortunately, facial surgery in these patients address a very, very important aspect of, of the, our quality of life, which is social integration. And yet, with the ethical, financial, and operational complexities of composite tissue allotransplantation, especially in the face, there are, you know, kind of hundreds, maybe thousands of patients around the world who are completely excluded from social integration because of this financial, ethical, and, you know, immunological concern. So I have left, actually, the National Health Service this January. So I am exclusively in the private practice, but I haven't left the academic domain. I continue to be, you know, kind of like a course lead in another university facing facial aesthetics. And it fascinates me how the burden, the psychological and quality of life burden for our patients with facial deformity, from a simple scar to a pan-facial, you know, kind of a trauma, I think we have a tool here that maybe Professor Pomahak is going to tell us more about how challenging it is to integrate it. But we have a tool available to us as reconstructive microsurgeons, as publicly funded healthcare, you know, systems, but yet it seems that the barriers for it to kind of like disseminate continue to be far more kind of stronger than the advantages of we as, as homo sapiens arriving at this supernatural way of wound healing. So from here, I really wanted to overcome at least in the National Health Service, the barrier of the management restriction on costs. It was very difficult. We had to do a lot of assumption, but I think we have to try and overcome and resist when we do simple research or even complex research, when we see heterogeneity of data, because unfortunately plastic surgeons around the world until now don't have one consent form for like breast reconstruction with DIA. You know, if you go to two hospitals across the Hudson in New York, you will find two different consent forms. If you go between like two different surgeons, you have two different concepts of communication with the same information, the same procedure. If you, you know, go for one unit of botulinum toxin, you know, in the aesthetic field with a patient paying from their pocket, you see variation of cost. So we have in our plastic and reconstructive surgery being an artisan complex health intervention rather than a small tablet that you can take and then you can measure the effect on blood pressure. We have much, much more complex data to deal with in, in understanding what we are doing and the impact of what we are doing on our patients and societies. Therefore, it's important that we are creative to some degree, I am putting creative into quote and quote, we have to be creative in providing new methodologies of reconciling the heterogeneity of data. And here, 
the issues that Laura has, has alluded to and of course Horacio to, the difficulty of comparing apples with bananas, United States system and reimbursement system with United Kingdom, with France, uh, presented definitely a lot of challenges and uh, we had presented just a proposal of a way to reconcile the heterogeneity of financial data in order to have an insightful kind of like message, you can maybe bring it to the attention of decision makers if a healthcare system is interested in developing this. The challenge continue to be the same, even if we are looking at patient reported outcome measure, we have like a bundle of them. We don't have comparative studies, not only with cost effectiveness. So, and here um, I would echo Graham's, um, you know, kind of plea for further collaboration and cooperation on a word platform, especially now we have the technology for us to communicate in order to eliminate this heterogeneity, which is reducing our efficacy as a community of healthcare providers and continue to contribute in denying some homo sapiens like the advantages of interventions that other homo sapiens have managed to kind of create or arrive at and reduce the burden of, of disease. Thank you very much, Mr. Gannon. Thank you very much. That's inspiring to hear everything that um, the work that you've put into this paper and the effort that you've put in and to really convey that message to us today. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, I'd just like to bring in Dr. Pomahak um, just to hear your thoughts on the paper um, firstly, and then we'll discuss a bit more about how it relates to your own practice in Boston. Sure. I would like to start by saying that uh, it is incredibly important to quantify the cost of care. We are in the process of trying to move from the experimental and grant-funded procedures to more what would be considered standard of care and paid by third-party payers, insurance companies, and state public insurers. And the and the key asks they have for us is unity on indications, uh, reporting of outcomes, not individually, but as a consortia of centers, and providing data on cost. So this is one of the key elements that will move the field forward and will allow us to ultimately make this uh, make this uh, operation available for anybody, hopefully around the world, who, who really needs it. The, uh, the challenge of uh, quantifying the cost uh, is immense, and we've struggled with it ourselves, uh, in part because there are so few cases, and it's hard to generalize uh, from uh, individual, even though there are 40 around the world, there are probably 12 that have been published extensively or 15 that have been published extensively and studied to, to this level of detail. And uh, we actually tried to circumvent it by pulling, pulling data from previous uh, conventional reconstructions and then using mathematical modeling, uh, extrapolate how much would individual units, we divided the phase into units and how much the unit would cost on average to reconstruct and sort of get to some sort of a comparison that way. But um, none of the techniques really is ideal. Um, none of it is really perfect. But I think there is even more fundamental issue here. I think we really should argue on quality of the reconstruction and not on cost. The cost almost becomes irrelevant if you look at the patient one, one and a half year after transplant versus one, 
one and a half year after conventional reconstruction. It is uh, like comparing perfect autologous breast reconstruction to mastectomy scar. It's just completely qualitatively different outcome. And that's where I think uh, a lot of these outcomes that will convince the insurance companies uh, ultimately probably won't be, or hopefully won't be the cost, but will be the quality of life, will be the patient reported outcomes, will be those sort of metrics that would allow us to convince them that this is uh, what the patients benefit from. So I think it's an ongoing effort to build the story and, and develop data uh, that would uh, convince uh, the payers to start covering, whether it's NHS or Medicare or private insurer here. But it's, it's critical to continue in this effort. Thank you very much, Dr. Pomahak. Yes, I think that's, that's absolutely vital. And starting to try and think about performing these procedures in the UK, I think we've really got to learn from your experience as much as possible. Um, and for that, I'd like to bring in Mr. Perks um, to ask you a few questions about your clinical practice and how that relates to this paper as well. I'll just ask Ali first before I come to Dr. Pomahash. What have you felt publishing this paper has brought to the bigger UK surgical group? How have you been able to collaborate with them in order perhaps to refine the cost? You've picked two patients that you personally have, and I accept that you've now moved slightly sideways, but I know Omar Ahmed uh, is on the call and he's very much part of the group. So how can you take your experience out into the bigger face transplant ready community? So as you could see, uh, Mr. Ghali, uh, Shadi Ghali is uh, the clinical lead for the Royal Free Hospital. Uh, and he is one of the co-author and has been involved in the conception of the paper. And we tried through uh, reaching out to the Royal Free Hospital to incorporate the team who, who is like at the forefront of this. The reason is that there has been a lot of foundation work in the UK for composite tissue allotransplantation. And then the, the team led uh, by uh, Professor Peter Butler historically have done a lot of the psychological and technical preparation for the procedure. And there are some kind of like sometimes jokes that if a, a difficult Dieppe flap is being carrying on and then the instruments are kind of worn or, or not good, they will reach out to the face transplant kit. They have, you know, already a microsurgical uh, instruments for the potential first case in the UK. So logistically, the Royal Free has been placed in that position. And the decision is like when and which patient, you know, that so far has not happened. So from, from showing that from the third year, we will have a clear cost effectiveness and cost saving for the, the National Health Service, it is very important that we try to understand how much that is, is actually saving us. So there are a lot of very good microsurgical and facial reconstructive units around London. And, you know, there was a, a similar evaluative paper of the attitudes of patients with band facial bands by uh, Professor Devolsky, showing that at least a minority of those would have liked to have a, a composite tissue transplantation, which is not available to them in the UK. So by providing this insight, we hope that, you know, the units such as the Royal Free or even St. Andrew's Bern, Bern unit there with an excellent microsurgical facility and for our association in general, will be able to see the, the savings 
that can happen and the resources that could be saved if we are to activate that pathway, even experimentally at the U.S. model is at the moment. Thanks very much. Dr. Homerhouse, can I just ask what will seem a pretty wacky question, but wouldn't it be far more cost-effective for the gunshot patient to have a primary composite face transplant, thereby avoiding all the cost of secondary reconstruction, which we've learned about from this paper? And I can't believe you haven't sat in that office there and that yourself. Can you share your thoughts, please? Sure. Uh, so first of all, just to reiterate my prior point, I think we absolutely must know how much the operations cost. But I was trying to make a point, we may not necessarily need to try to be cheaper or more cost effective. You know, mastectomy reconstruction is always going to be more expensive than closing mastectomy, but it's still so much better that no one questions the cost. So I think we should move to that plane. And how do we document and how do we adequately demonstrate the superiority of the outcome is, is the challenge. But going to your question, um, I guess the short answer would be yes, absolutely. It would be great to do immediate uh, transplant and, um, and provide the superior reconstruction right away without spending unnecessary money, but also burden to the patient, uh, recovery complication, all these things that happen with conventional reconstruction. I think there are two issues. One is uh, the issue of informed consent. What do we know about the operation itself? And the second thing is the mental sort of state of the patient uh, who would be in many ways vulnerable to that, while at the same time waiting unpredictable amount of time for a potential donor. Uh, so the donor waiting time could be from next day. We have had literally offer next day and transplanted patient next day after listing, but we've also had patient that waited 17 months. So in that range, you could imagine that some degree of conventional reconstruction probably should be offered and should be done. And that's what we actually currently do. If there is a massive, for example, the gunshot wound to the face injury, we perform mostly basic closure of the wound, even if it means free flap to cover the wounds. But we don't really embark on the extensive reconstructive efforts until we allow the patients to recover and consult with them and offer them the two alternatives, going conventional route or going the transplant route with the pros and cons. And I think over time, as we learn more about the outcomes and longevity of the transplant and all these things, uh, we'll be better able to inform the patient what they can expect from the transplant option. That's a great experience. Thank you so much. We've had a few questions sent in just regarding your experience, essentially and your main learning points, both from a cost point of view, but also a patient experience point of view, since that first face transplant in 2011. Um, what are the main things that you've changed in your approach to VCA for patients? Um, and have you seen any changes in their outcomes as a result of that as well? Yeah, we, we certainly have learned a lot of things. We have, there have been technical advances in managing the vasculature, what vessels you need and what vessels you don't need. We have learned to use computer simulations for guiding osteotomies, which have made the, the complex upper and lower jaw attaining transplants a lot easier and more reproducible and more expeditious. We have learned from management of the patients how to handle submandibular glands, how to prevent some of the complications that we have seen early on. So there are a lot of things that we have learned clinically, and we try to publish them as we progress through it. On the immunosuppression side, I would say that we have literally 
tried to minimize immune suppression early on, and, and a lot of patients did really well on dual therapy, just calcineurin inhibitor and, and mycophenolate or tacrolimus. But uh, it turns out that those patients had, uh, over a longer period of uh, time, a more frequent rejection. So it probably is not the right time to quite jump into the experimentation and probably better to treat patients if you want to have the most stable and best possible outcomes would be better to treat with triple standard immune suppression, including the steroid, in addition to the two medications. Those are probably the big lessons we have learned. Lovely. Thank you so much. And that leads in nicely to a question from Omar Ahmed, who asked specifically with regard to immunosuppression, a lot of the resistance it's felt starting up VCA in the UK in particular is with regards to the ethical dilemma of starting a patient who's previously off immunosuppression on immunosuppression lifelong. And did you face that in the US initially? And how did you overcome this essentially? Yeah, I think that's for sure the largest uh, ethical dilemma. How do you convert healthy but deformed patient into chronically ill patient on immune suppression? And where is the balance? And, you know, I think if you start like we have started with the most extensive uh, deformities, the patients are the ones that tell you what's worth to them. And of course, the discussions uh, at that time are we don't really know if the phase is going to last a week or a year or 10 years. Uh, but we, we have all the expectations that it's not going to be good for life, most likely, especially in the young patients, almost certainly not for life. So the patients are telling us that they are interested in taking these risks on. They're interested in looking and functioning more normally, and they're, they're not interested in saving few years on the end of their life in living the deformed uh, reality. So I think those, those things have been pretty much answered by our, by our patients Mm-hmm. Uh, the longevity is still kind of a of transplant is a kind of an unanswered question. There is no doubt that there are chronic changes in pretty much all the allografts. There are changes that are visible, and uh, and it appears to be a period of time seven ten years where more catastrophic rejections have occurred. Whether it's the French patient or currently we have a patient that probably the most immunologically challenging, not probably, certainly the most immunologically challenging of all probably ever done. But she developed chronic rejection to the point where her face is scarring down. Uh, her pain has recurred. She virtually looks like she did before the transplant. And uh, we relisted her for another transplant. And again, that's, that's where we learned from our patients during the discussion, telling her that she got seven years out of this one Based on what we know on organ transplant, the second transplant never lasts longer than the first. So at best, she would get another seven years. Is it worth it or do we go back to the fallback plan B conventional reconstruction? She's the one who says, I would rather have another seven years or less of good life with transplant rather than being deformed. So um, I think these these are all the unanswered questions, but uh, you know, in context, uh, Heart and lung transplant, the half time is about four or five years. Kidney is about 10, 12 years. So if we do, if we do have half time of 10, 15 years, it's probably in the overall transplant uh, sort of uh, perspective, it's fairly good survival. Um, and there will be, without a doubt, patients that will, uh, that will, that will last a lot longer. Like the first hand transplant in Louisville, Kentucky, the patient has had the hand for 20 years and I saw him last year, it looks like yours or my hand. 
Amazing. I think they're such important points. And yeah, especially with regards to informed consent with the patient. I think that's the most important thing about the ethical considerations as well and making sure that you tailor it for that specific patient and making a decision with them and not for them. I think you've, t you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. So thank you so much for that. I was going to ask Dr. Palmerhouse whether in his research department, the emphasis on CTA has seen any diminution in the interest of advancing contemporary reconstruction because we're all privileged as reconstructive microsurgeons to have lived through an era of amazing innovation and now also tissue engineering and many other things and you're in the best position to advise us whether you think that interest is continuing in the conventional world or is being left behind a little as more interest in the CTA developed. Well, that's a very, very good, uh, very good point and uh, thought. I, I hope that there is no reduction in enthusiasm about conventional reconstruction because uh, we have to push all the frontiers forward, whether it's prosthetics, whether it's conventional reconstruction, whether it's transplant. I think in big picture, transplant is a bridging technology until something better comes along and, and whether it's 3D printing, God knows tissue engineering, it's going to be something better than recycling human parts. But the same was true in 1954 when Joe Murray did the first kidney. And, and here we are 60, 70 years later, and it still is the bridging technology that is the most reliable. So that's where I think we probably can still improve a little bit on conventional reconstruction. I think there hopefully will be breakthroughs that allow us to use tissues that are modified or maybe support structures that are modified as compared to what we currently do uh, so that the results are better because as you all know the tissues you can take from human body are just not of the quality the face needs and after 15 years in practice i finally got first total nasal reconstruction that i'm kind of proud of but god it's a lot of work to get that nose to look like nose and patient to breathe through it so um not everyone will have that exposure. Not everyone may have the talent. I don't, I'm not sure I have it to the point that I could compete with some of the unique individuals around the world. In that sense, transplant is probably a little bit more reproducible because anybody can learn that. It's just a, it's more technical exercise. Yeah, I think we, we should explore everything and, and push forward and try to figure out what helps our patients at given time the best, whatever it is. Thank you. Thank you. That's another great point. And yes, hopefully everything can continue to develop side by side and we bring um, the right treatment for the right patient going forward. So I think that's that's so important. I think that's really encapsulated um, the article nicely and brought it to a kind of clinical um, viewpoint as well. So thank you so much for that discussion. I'd just like to ask both Mr. Ganim and Dr. Pomahak. Um, so firstly, Ali Ganim, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into research initially and how you would advise all the trainees watching and listening um, to get involved in research as well and try and push things forward and bring the new avenue for the future generation as well. So I, I would like to make advantage of um, um, Usaid Asir being in uh, the audience. So Usaid comes from Gaza, and uh, you know that Gaza is a very unique part of the world from political and health perspective. I come from Syria. So when I was um, a doctor trainee in Syria, um, when I left Syria and I came to the UK, 
it was quite fascinating for me to see the gap between low and middle income countries and advanced countries in relation to knowledge and uh, resources. One of the most fascinating discovery that I come across as a junior doctor in the UK is understanding the principles of evidence-based medicine. So when I took a few colleagues from Gaza on our master in burn care as part of a distance learning initiative to improve burn care in Gaza, it, you know, I, I remember surveying my students, asking them about where, what, and how is the medical knowledge arrive at the, the bedside for them. And for them, like they had uh, several kind of resources, some textbooks, they didn't have access to PubMed, they didn't have access to some of the new evidence in medicine. And that have always inspired me to kind of understand how we can find and appraise and finally utilize best available evidence in our day-to-day problem solving with our patients. So that inspiration was a, a small curiosity for a, a newly arriving doctor from another healthcare system to something that maybe my colleagues in the UK had taken for granted, and they, they speak about it every day, but it is not something that is available globally. So as you know, The Lancet uh, has an initiative for global surgery, and the majority of our fellow human beings don't have access to basic surgical care in this world. Accordingly, um, I think every surgeon must engage with this global need to improve surgical accessibility. And without data, without understanding the principles of evidence-based medicine, we are just technicians and artisans. We are not leading the change of more democratic and fairer um, surgical care globally. So from that end, I would say that I was not able to take that curiosity forward without having a dedicated time to understand research. I don't think everyone in surgical training should become like Ali Ghanem. I have like three master degrees and a PhD and a, a bundle of diplomas. That is not necessary. I mean, that was driven partly by my, you know, bizarre curiosity about different aspects of, of life as well as, you know, my personal journey. But I think we should take a pause through our careers and take adequate amount of attention to understand the language of evidence-based medicine. For me, the first step was to take maybe one year out and did a master in surgical science that gave me the tools and uh, real competencies in dealing with research questions and understanding that whatever I'm doing is underpinned by evidence and it could be improved for for my patients. So from that end, then I continue with that interest, which again, through my connection with the low and middle income countries by being myself descendant of that part, I always had an interest in another aspect of our academic work, which is education. And therefore I I had an interest in, in both kind of like you will see with my literature, half of it is in pedagogy, and competency assessment and learning in surgery, and the other half is in evidence-based development of consensus, et cetera. So I think we should all have a a self-to-self conversation, find out what is 
that brought us to become surgeon and have our most important calls translated into a role we are playing in our immediate community in the countries we are living in and beyond that to the wider community on this planet you know towards like better global surgery and my advice would be is to be perseverant you know research is never rewarding you know as a research assistant you get paid less than your counter clinical colleagues and the funding of research is getting more and more difficult especially in plastic surgery we are considered superfluous to medicine most of the time you know the burden of care of plastic reconstructive surgery is considered non-necessary in some countries we have to overcome all that challenge and then keep the focus on our calls and to be useful by making our message better through research. Thank you, Ali. That's great to hear from you and great to hear your personal story as well. So thank you so much. I think that's inspiring for a lot of people listening and wanting to get involved in research as well. I'd like to ask us a similar but slightly more clinical question for Dr. Pomahatch about your own journey as well into becoming involved with VCA and becoming a leader in the field. Um, and how that came about for yourself and what drove you to that and also the advice that you would have for trainees both in the US and UK systems to try and um, emulate part of that and build their own careers as well. Well, thank you. I, you know, I think uh, facial reconstruction was really what drove me. Prior to that, I thought I would be vascular or transplant surgeon unrelated to all the transplants we're doing now. Uh, I just thought it was a good combination of technical exercise and treating the whole patient and so forth. So facial reconstruction really became the, the driving uh, motive for me. And when I started in practice, had a cluster of patients that really had a horrible traumatic burn and, and cancer defects that I thought I was trained as best as I possibly could have been. I really worked as hard as I could. I really wanted to give them the best I had. And still the results were not quite ideal in my mind. And, um, certainly not anywhere near as normal or good looking. And so it was pure coincidence that at that time, I started in practice 2004, 2005 was the first uh, face transplant performed in France. And I suddenly realized I could operate a hundred times and never repair the defect that that woman had the way that they were able to do in single operation. And, And that sort of changed my thinking. I saw an opportunity to perhaps explore something that would be fundamentally providing true replacement like with like of the tissues and uh, led me on the path to to the VCA. And, and of course, like anybody else in our academic department, I started with a lab and I actually had research going on on chondrocytes and gene delivery to chondrocytes and healing defects. But as the transplant started to become sort of the the word went around i didn't want to be sort of viewed as the person that just talks and doesn't make things happen and so i would say i put a lot more effort into these darn chondrocytes that i never got funded for <laughs> but but uh, ultimately it drove me towards the uh, vca program and uh, ended up being uh, what it is but of course it wouldn't happen without dr erickson and prebats my great mentors and leader of our division and one of my clinical heroes uh, uh, that I needed objectively as a young attending to to even continue a project like that and have their back. 
but also, you know, the first transplant, I was 38. You want to have somebody like Julian Prebads, who's world-class microsurgeon. If anything goes wrong, he's the guy who you want next to you. So it, it was certainly a coincidence of a lot of lucky moments, but uh, it's kind of like life is, I guess, in many ways. Thank you so much. That's fascinating to hear your story as well. And yeah, I truly believe you make your own luck as well. And it seems that you've done that to a degree and really brought a lot of benefit to a, a lot of patients now as well as a result of it. So Graham's on the call as well. He's really pushed that from the UK perspective and internationally as well, bringing a lot of trainees together and inspiring them in the same way that you do to really push the boundaries and bring thoughts together and work with others. I think that was such an important point you made to always have someone... Um, kind of giving you a helping hand if needs be and just sometimes just the, the support as well just emotionally through these times of pushing boundaries and doing new things I think that's fascinating. I was just thinking uh, how much serendipity plays a part in in my life just like Bodan and the one thing I'd leave with the trainees is please talk to people that you don't know because they're the only people who might change your life. You go out you go to a party you talk to the same people you talk to the same guys in the operating theatre or the same team but go and talk to people you don't know because in the theater next door is a neurosurgeon using a piece of kit that might be just what you need to get around the corner in the difficult reconstruction and uh, the more you collaborate and have these chance meetings i mean i keep records of all these weird serendipitous things that happen to me because it, it's just so exciting you know you youngsters the world's your oyster have a great time but talk to people you don't know please Thanks for having me along. It's been a real honor. Thank you very much, Graham. With that, I think we'll end today's Journal Club. It's been an amazing exploration of the paper and the article, which is available open access in EJPS. And so please, everyone, download it and read it and let us know your thoughts on social media as well, and we'll take it forward. But for now, I'd just like to say thank you to our whole panel, in particular to Dr. Bodan Pomahach. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, also, thank you very much to Mr. Ali Ghanem. Thank you very much, Dimitri. I enjoyed this very much. Also, thank you very much, Horatio. Thank you and very much. An extra thank you as well to Graham Perks, who's really been a driving force to this journal club itself and for offering his advice to the trainees as always as well. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And last but not least, thank you so much to uh, Ms. Laura Berlage for leading the critical appraisal today and offering her thoughts and insights on the article today. So thank you very much, Laura. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this month's European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. Please send us your thoughts about the article on social media using the hashtag EJPSJournalClub. Thank you again and see you in two months for our next episode.